Hello, everybody. It's Keith. Help support the Northeast scene and declare yourself a member today. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast medium of choice. Rate us and leave a review. Every little bit helps. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It has every podcast episode plus other exclusive content. Like and leave a comment. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TheNEScene. Also, continue to write us at NortheastScene at gmail.com. We want to share your experiences as well. And now, here's the show. Can't imagine Evan not enjoying getting fucked up. Yeah. I love it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. And we're back. And you know what? We're here no matter what happens, no matter what difficulty we're going through, neither rain nor sleet nor snow, anything, sickness. Folks, I apologize if I sound a little weird tonight. I'm sick. Can you believe that, Tommy? (laughs) (laughs) We just got done talking about this. It's like, I hate being sick like that because the way Keith explained it is like he's not sick, like lay in bed sick, but it's like the whole day. It's just fucking annoying. Yeah, I get up in the morning and I look forward. I actually look forward to Monday morning because I don't know. Sunday nights are kind of depressing. So I'm like, all right, back to work. Here we go. I have food. I'm drinking coffee. I'm watching a Twitch stream. I'm working. I'm in it. And today, this whole day has just been miserable. Like I would get through a work call and then just go and lay down and, you know, try to get my energy back up for the next one. I just feel, I feel off. I have whatever, I have whatever weird thing Tommy had the other week. Tommy, I blame you for giving it to me, even though we live in different states. And I was going to say, I had it a month before you came to visit. <laughs> <laughs> it was latent. It was somewhere in my house and you touched it, whatever it was. I took it home with me. But folks, in uh, more exciting news... Tonight on the show will be photographer Robert Butcher. Now, this guy has seen it all. He's done it all. He's got endless entertaining stories, and you're going to hear them all tonight. He's a legend, Tommy. He's photographed Led Zeppelin, and he was telling me about this time he was at uh, Mick Jagger's birthday party and how it wasn't really fun. Maybe we'll hear that story. You know, this is going to be an interesting one. I'm excited. (laughs) <laughs> I just imagine the Rolling Stones, like after they were like really popular, like think like Rolling Stones, like nine, mid nineteen eighties, like Dancing in the Street, Rolling Stones. They yeah. fucking were probably horrific to be around. They probably, <laughs> just like unbearably like shitty. And like I always thought about that. I remember somebody telling like the um, talking about. I don't know how long ago it was, but somebody did that really long. I think it was Martin Scorsese did that really long thing about the Beatles. It was like a documentary they did on, I think it was HBO. Yes, and- it was called uh, Not Good. <laughs> oh, we're going to hear from Vadim about that. Yeah. Um, so the the thing that kind of killed me was like, we always got this thing of like the Beatles were like kind of like these goody two shoes guys. And yeah. like the Rolling Stones were like badass, but in real life, it was like the exact fucking opposite. Like 
the Rolling Stones were from London. They had like private school educations. They were like the kind of posh kind of like upper crusty kind of dudes. And the dudes from fucking the Beatles were like from Birmingham. They were like fucking dead working class. Like they were, they were the fucking tough guys. Like, can <laughs> really? you believe that? Yeah, dude. I, I remember someone telling me it was one. Um, I don't remember who it was, but I heard it in an interview and I was like, I got to go look that up. And I remember looking it up being like, Oh shit, he's right. They actually are like, you know, well, I mean, in terms of their, his characterization, like at least where they're from is that's true. If I had to pick, I would pick Rolling Stones. I like their whole deal better. I liked the Rolling Stones for a really long time, only because I, when I worked with a guy, he had a boom box and he only had like five or six CDs and Two of them were Rolling Stones Hot Rocks 1 and Hot Rocks 2, and he would just play them back to back. So I, I heard a great deal of Rolling Stones growing up, and I, I enjoyed the vast majority of it. Well, speaking of other classic bands, Tommy, have you seen mentions of this Fugazi tribute album online? I, everybody's on this thing. Failure, Zayo, Shai Halud. Jonah Matranga, the list goes on and on, and they're all covering Fugazi songs. I have not heard about that. Yeah, it's a thing. I, I have to listen to this because I'm really interested to see some of these bands' takes on Fugazi. And you know what I realized, Tommy? I mm. like Fugazi a lot. I've only heard their first two records. Uh, remind me what the first two are. You haven't heard them at all, have you? I know the one that has waiting room in it. <laughs> and then I know I had the whole, uh, I had red medicine. I had that. I actually had that CD and I know that one pretty well. 13 songs was the compilation that has the early stuff. I've I, heard that. That I, that I know. And repeater. Yeah. I don't know. Repeater. I think that's like the first true LP. That's okay. really good. But I, I looked on Spotify and I was like, wait, I've only heard the first two. I love this band. Like I, I, there's a lot more I need to hear. Oh, yeah. Red Medicine has some really, really good songs on it. That's one of those ones that uh, my brother-in-law introduced me to Fugazi. And he actually took me to a Fugazi show in 1998, I think. You've seen them? Yes. Wow. That's one of those, I still have that. I thought I took a picture of that for you. I still have this, the ticket stub upstairs. Oh, well, you got to send that to me. We need to post that. Yeah, a band from, I think they were from Philadelphia called Skeleton Key opened up. Mm -hmm. And I thought they were really cool was they had a drummer, but they also had like a percussionist. And it was kind of like, it kind of even predated like Stomp and stuff like, but the guy didn't play anything normal in terms of drums. He had like pots and pans and like fucking cymbals made out of garbage can lids and shit. It was really cool. That does sound cool. It was really good. So I want to listen to more Fugazi albums. I've heard some of The Argument, which I think was their last one, but I just never finished it. I bought it when it came out. Yeah, I, I want to hear the, the rest of the Fugazi discography, and then I want to listen to this tribute album to see what all of these classic bands are doing with their stuff. That's going to be my little project for this weekend. Isn't that exciting? Oh, so Tommy, let me ask you, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, today was my first day back at school. Oh, that was today. Yeah, that was today. How was it? Um, good. I mean, the first day back is like usually the like uh, it's kindergarten through twelfth grade, all kind of in the same place. So it's very generic kind of thing. Like, there's nothing specific to my school that we talked about. 
Um, it's a lot of like, here's a motivational speaker to kind of get you hyped up for the year. And here's what our five-year plan look. It's very, very boring, but that's about it. I mean, it was nice just to see everybody. Most of the people I haven't seen since June. So, you know, that's great. Yeah. Nice to get together with everybody and say hello. And, uh, you also get to meet the new people that are coming in to teach in the building. So that, that's really nice. Kind of give them the heads up of like, Hey, don't do this. <laughs> Or don't do that. Or make sure you show up on time to so-and-so's meetings because they'll flip out if you don't. Do you ever get tempted to tell people about the podcast at work? Uh, No, no. Uh, just because nobody at work is into like music like this at all. I see. I have been tempted because one guy I work with actually knows a lot of the bands. Oh, yeah, so he like there would be temptation there, but I just haven't had a personal conversation with him in a while. And another person I'm kind of close to, but I I just wouldn't bring it up because I don't want I don't want that seeping into the work bloodstream. You know, I just can't. No, and I, I think the other thing is is like with my I like to separate like there's my home life, which is my kids and my family and the podcast and skateboarding, and then there's work, like you know my job at work is to teach math and be a role model. Like that's, I separate the two very, very neatly. I, I think. I think that's good because if they came on this, if your students heard you on this podcast, they would lose all respect for you. Yeah. They, no, I'm just they, kidding. No, they would be, I, I think a lot of parents would just, they wouldn't even be upset with the content. They'd just be like, Oh, the music is terrible. But like, I just don't like how he says the F word or say, so, you know what I mean? Like they're they're My school's gripe with it would be like, he swears on it. Yes. They might not like that. Yeah, look, welcome to life. <laughs> and again, but I, thought you, I thought you were going to say, "Yeah, fuck them." <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, uh, I, I, I've never been tempted to tell anybody about it because I, I feel like uh, I like keeping it as something that just it's it's this thing of like you and I do. There's sometimes where it, people will mention it to me. Uh, not at work, but like, like, you know, people on Instagram or something like that. And I'm like, oh, that's right. Other people listen to this. I forget. Because sometimes <laughs> like it just does feel like it's a conversation between you and I and a guest. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, that's right. Keith puts this on the internet. Like, fuck, People can listen to this. I forget too. And I get so uncomfortable because I don't know, whatever that is psychologically that I can't just accept nice comments. Like a bunch of people messaged me today to say how much they like the, uh, the most recent episode with Jesse Dano. Oh, yeah. And I was like, wow, great, you know? And I, I just train myself to just say just say a nice thank you and move on. Because like, I'm like deleting the message and retyping it. And I'm like, oh, I have to say all this stuff. It's like, no, just say a nice thank you and move on. You don't have to make such a big deal out of it. Yeah, I, uh, this is the other thing they did at work today. I forgot about this. They give out awards for like five years of service, 10 years of service, like they, you know, in five, five year increments. And you can always tell when someone hates attention because like <laughs> the, like the whole, the whole procedure is like somebody from that school gets up, they make a big speech about them, you know, and they don't say their name until the last thing. They'll be like, when I first met this person and they have some anecdote that goes along with it. And you can see that person like, fuck that's me like <laughs> the girl that i'm really really friendly with she's like she's not shy at all but they started talking and i uh, you know they were like hey i met this person and she was so happy and so cheerful and so fun and blah 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 
And I turned around and I was like, oh shit, it's your five years. And she looked at me and she was dead serious. She was like, I don't think so. And I was like, I, I think she's talking about you. Like, I'm almost positive she is. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, no. And they're like, and welcome, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, that was you. That was you. She was talking about the entire time. She was like, oh my God, I forgot. Like, She didn't know it was her own anniversary speech as she was listening to it? Well, that's the other thing. Uh, we tend to have side conversations while someone's talking on the microphone, which is ultimately probably pretty rude, but at the same yeah. time, it, it makes the day go faster. The other thing is, is like, sometimes it's like really like necessary things. And, you know, there's like a motivational speaker on there who's, you know, he's there through like fucking zoom and he can't see us for real. Like you can just see a big crowd of people and you're like, and they're sending you emails like, Hey, can you please update your unit plans for, you know, unit one? And it's like, fuck did you get that email from so-and-so? And like, you know, you're just taking care of school business. Oh, I, I haven't think- done that in a while. So you were going deep on school specifics. And I'm like, let me, let me hit the uh, napalm death button. It's been a long time. That one kind of hurt. <laughs> I'm sorry. Tommy. I felt like I, I felt like wasn't really veering off on that one, but well, yeah, it's uh, not it's- really. I just wanted to hit the button. <laughs> But yeah, no, it was, it's very, uh, going back to your point, it's like, you can see when people are super uncomfortable with that. And for some reason that always makes me laugh. (laughs) You see somebody get really uncomfortable with like attention. You're like, good luck with that. (laughs) Now everybody's staring at you. (laughs) All right, folks. So now we're going to talk to Robert Butcher. Enjoy. All right, folks. We're here now with Robert Butcher. Robert, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. So, Robert, how are you doing today? I woke up late, did a whitewash, which is always good. A whitewash? What is that? Well, you wash all your white clothes. Sheep, oh, okay. Cow, yeah. it's, it's Monday. It's Monday wash day. <laughs> Keeping the old traditions alive. <laughs> That's beautiful. I woke up sick today. Can you believe that? Sick? How sick? What kind of? I don't know. I got some kind of sinus weird thing going on. Like it's like it's like twenty five. It feels like twenty five percent of a cold, just enough to like ruin the day. Oh, Delta baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's this is it. I've got it. It's time. <laughs> yeah. You know what I've realized is uh, telling people you're sick now is like a bad idea. I told a couple coworkers I was sick, and they're like. What's going on? Do you have the virus? Like, do you, are you vaccinated? I was like, yes, yes, it's fine. I just have a little sinus thing going on. There's, there's no empathy. It's when, when people tell me they're not vaccinated, I die, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, because no, I, I totally believe that if, it, if it's caused by anything, it's caused through Mother Nature, Mother Earth, just trying to eliminate us as human beings because we haven't protected or done anything nice for this planet forever. So you just you know, getting rid of us. Start again. You know, you mentioned that the other night, and I thought that was pretty profound. I've thought about that because, you know, the the world is healing a little bit, or was, because people were inside for a year. Yeah, that, that David Attenborough documentary on how the world kind of healed itself in the, in the last year was amazing. Um, gorillas doubled their birth rate, and Dolphins and whales can hear each other now under the sea because we don't have all those um, ships with tourists on them floating around in, in Alaska and stuff. We've got, we, you know, it, the, the Earth will heal itself very, very quickly if we're not around. But as long as we're here, things are just going to keep getting worse. Exactly. 
Yeah. <laughs> you can kind of see that though. Like I, I went to college in, uh, in Wilkes-Barre and there was a lot of places that had been closed down after the, the coal industry dried up and uh, buildings that had been kind of like previous, like big, huge brick structures and, you know, concrete things were now just completely covered in moss and vines and crumbling. And it was like, wow, that's really crazy. That closed in like 1979. And it was like, 2000, you know, so 20 some odd years later, and it was completely, you know, almost completely overtaken and, and being, you know, basically brought back down to earth. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, look at the pyramids in, you know, South America, totally covered and lost forever. The jungle's taken, taken over again. So, Robert, let's get to know you a little bit. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Sheffield in Yorkshire in England. Where is that like relative to London? Because that's my only frame of reference. 160 miles north. So uh, what was it like there? Horrible. How so? Well, I, I was born just after the Second World War. So there were still bomb sites and blowing up buildings. Because Sheffield was bombed because it's a big it was a big steel manufacturing place. And probably like Pittsburgh. So was there still like bombed out buildings and wreckage from the war that you could see? Yeah, yeah, it was all very, very depressing. And the radio was depressing. Well, all you heard all day on the BBC was how much is that doggy in the fucking window by Doris Day and Mario Lanza <laughs> and, the, and the laughing policeman and just horrible, horrible music. You know, it wasn't until 1958 when I, probably 1957 when I heard uh, Heartbreak Hotel that I thought, wow, this is, this is what's been missing in my life. And that was coming out of Radio Luxembourg in Germany, kind of a 5,000-watt radio station. Once you heard that, did you, did you have an interest in music and, and playing music and that type of thing? I had an interest in playing a tennis racket in front of a mirror for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> did you get caught up in, like, Beatlemania or any of that stuff? Not Beatlemania, no. Um, I was... Uh, I didn't like the Beatles when they first came out. You know, they were just too... They look manufactured with their suits on and uh, and their hair and the uh, yeah yeah lo loves me yeah 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 all, all that I, I wasn't into that because I was into more like heavy rock and roll. I mean Eddie Cochran was my favorite musician for a long time. Gene Vincent, you know, and the Beatles were just pop. You know, it was just another how much is that doggy in the window kind of thing. And then in 1962, I saw the Rolling Stones for the first time when I was about 12. And um, that changed my life, too. I mean, that was what rock and roll was, dirt, filth, you know, dangerous-looking people. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about that in the first segment, Beatles versus Stones. And I said, I have to go with the Stones because, I don't know, I just like the whole presentation and sound better. Yeah. I actually, I remember hearing someone comment on it because they were talking about um, Scorsese had done that, you know, t long documentary about the Beatles. And... Uh, one of the people that was commenting on it was like, you know, I, we were always kind of presented with this thing. Like the Beatles were like this kind of, uh, they were like the, the good boys kind of like preppy, like you said, kind of manufactured, you know, you know, nicely fitting suits. And like the Rolling Stones were kind of like the dangerous guys. Like they were like, you know, presented as like the real rock and roll. And he was like, yeah, but the thing was, is like the guys from the Stones were mainly from like London and kind of posh, whereas like the guys from the Beatles were pretty much dead working class. Like they were working class guys that uh, kind of came. Can you speak to that a little bit or no? I think they were more middle class than working class. 
I, I think they try to put their roots into working class, but no, not not really. I mean, they all lived in semi-detached houses and stuff like that. No, no one's coming out of the working class houses that you get in the north of England and stuff like that. You know, so no, just I mean, I I remember Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. I don't know if you know who they are. No. Johnny Kidd and the Pirates had the greatest song ever, got shot of rhythm and blues. And I, they played at my youth club, well, where we used to have our youth club thing. And they were the first men that I saw play rock and roll. All the bands I used to see in those days were kids about 18, 19. But these were real men, you know. And I ran to the front of the stage and I pushed through all these girls to get to the front of the stage because I really, I really dug this song. And the lead guitarist walked over me, kicked me in the face with his Cuban heel boots and said, fuck off, kid. (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah, that's that's rock and roll, you know. But they were men, you know. They they were, you know, probably about 25, 26 to a 12-year-old kid. They were men, you know. Were they upset because you were getting in the way of the girls up front? Oh, of course. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What was your interest? Now, I know you're a photographer primarily, but um, has that always been your main passion or where you did you decide between like music and photography or were you into everything? What was your what was your story? My real passion when I was young is I wanted to be a chef. You know? Oh, really? Yeah. I my father was a photographer and they migrated from Yorkshire to Perth in West Australia back in 64. And my father went there with intentions of being a photographer. And I really wanted to be a chef, but in those days, Australia was, you know, was a very rustic country, and and there, there was no whole cuisine. There was, you know, the big night out for them was steak and chips, steak and French fries, and nothing fancy, and so there was no catering schools or anything like that. So I applied to go back to England to Bournemouth to be a to be a chef, but uh, they didn't accept my. My application, probably because I was, uh, I didn't fit their mold. You know, I was, I was the captain of the rugby team when I was a kid and stuff like that. And so I, I got a job in a bakery and I was apprenticed and I was like the top apprentice in the state for a couple of years. And I was running, I was basically running the hoppers and the proofers and the ovens and stuff. And I got caught up in a machine, a proofing machine, and it nearly ripped my arm off. And and the fire brigade were called, and they had to chop the machine off, and my arm was paralyzed. And they thought it might have to be amputated. And I found a, a specialist that found there was a very small amount of electricity still running through a nerve, and he saved my arm. So in the meantime, my father adapted a camera for me that I could just wear around my neck and shoot with a cable. And being a young man, I was about 15, 16 at the time, and he gave me this camera, and I just went down to railway yards and I started photographing abandoned buildings, abandoned trains, abandoned wheels, you know, anything that was kind of gritty. And he processed my film, and he said, you know, you've got a good eye, because I'd, I'd cropped everything in the camera. Nothing needed to be cropped. So I went to London to study photography and became a photographer. All right. So now you're in London. I'm in London, 1967. 
in London in 1967. Are you in college? You're going to study photography in college? I'm in college, and I had a part-time job working for a company called Interamco. Now, I don't know if you know about Interamco, but they're an arms seller. So we were renovating Second World War 303s and German Mausers, and the whole thing was very Dickinson. It was like this, you have to top, top your hat to the boss. And there were American oh. bosses, and it was fucking horrible. Anyway, <laughs> so all, 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 all the English 303s and the Mausers had brass plates on, on the, uh, the part that you put on your shoulder, the shoulder rest, and they had brass tubes inside for cleaning the gun. So we used to nick all that stuff and take it down to the, the brass works place and sell it. So I was making like wages. I was making illegal money from nicking stuff. And I never got caught, but I got crucified one day. A, a, a whole box of guns fell down and I grabbed them to stop them and a six inch nail went straight through my finger. And, Oof. and crucified me to this box and I had to, had to be lifted off, <laughs> un unhooked. <laughs> Rushed down to the hospital for a tetanus shot, which was the most painful thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And, uh -huh. uh, and I, gave, I, I gave that up. I thought, this is dangerous, you know. And I, I was doing other things as well. By that time, I was dibbling and dabbling in, in, in drugs and stuff. So what were you doing at that time? Like, uh, I would say my, my initial drug use started around... 18, like right when I got out of high school, I just did ecstasy randomly one night. I didn't even know what it was. And then after that, I was like, whoa, like, I didn't know this kind of stuff existed. Wow. Let's, let's try some more of this. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been drinking and smoking since I was eight. Oh, and so you got a really early start. Really early start. Yeah. I mean, it was, and I was, I was smoking hash at 14, 15. But I'd always wanted to try heroin because I, I saw the movie The Man with the Golden Arm with Frank Sinatra. Oh, yeah. And I was fascinated, and I, and I asked my mother, I said, you know, what's heroin? And she said, well, you know, one day you'll be walking down a dark alleyway and someone will rush up to you with a syringe sticker in your arm and you hook straight away, and, you, and, you, and I thought, this sounded wrong. So when I went to London and I was studying, I mean, I was pretty lonely. I didn't have any friends there or anything. I was just on my own. And I went to the Red Line in Ealing and I met these like crazy kids my age. And they asked me if I wanted to try heroin. I went, yeah, why not? Because I wanted to. And it was everything I thought it would be and more. So from the first time, you enjoyed it that much? Oh, yeah. It was, you know, I was, you know, my youth was very desolate. I wanted something more than bombed out buildings and holes in the road and weeds growing through pavements and everything the world just looked wrong plus the fact my grandfather when i was really young when i was about four my grandfather was watching tv and he sat me on his knee and we were watching soldiers returning from korea and he said to me you know i was a soldier my father was a soldier your father was a soldier and one day you're going to be a soldier and i thought to myself i'm Fuck you, fuck this. And I, I didn't actually have those words at that time, but it was just something I had a huge fear of, of having to, to die for, for, for something. And so, yeah, it was desolate. 
So when I went to London and, and um, it wasn't all bright lights, big city. I mean, London was pretty weird at the time. And um, now I, I started shooting dope. Then I, then I became a registered heroin addict. And, and then everything was good for a few years till I got serum hepatitis. So, yeah, Robert, I've heard you mention this before. So you could actually become a registered heroin addict yeah. in London. Yeah. And what, what's the process there? What, do you just go and sign up and you can go and get a dose every day? What, what you do, well, the whole system of being a registered heroin addict was based on the colonials coming back, back to England from the colonies, right, from India, uh, where they became addicted to heroin. Heroin was, heroin was used for everything, you know. So instead of trying to wean them off, your regular doctor could give you a script for heroin, but you had to be registered with the home office. So your name goes in a book. And for me to become a registered heroin, I mean, I wasn't using anywhere near the amount that I was getting when I got, got my first script. But I, I sat up one night and I just tracked my arms. And I went to my doctor and I said, look, man, you know, I'm addicted to heroin. He said, I'm using it. And I said, you know, uh, seven, gra- seven grains a day, and same ampules and methadone a day. And so anyway, so that's what, what my script was. There was no question. And it was a weekly script. Wow. So then you, you would kind of take out how much you would use for the week. Then you'd go down to Piccadilly in London. Cause that's where you usually picked your scripts up from, from Boots and Piccadilly. And uh, then you would go down the toilets and sell them. And it was good. It was a, like a, a pound for six jacks. That sounds like a good system. Were you making decent money? Oh, yeah. I, I, until I started using it all. and then. <laughs> <laughs> how long did it take? Like from the time you registered, how long before everything was gone in, I don't know, a day or so? How quickly did it escalate? Oh, probably over a year. Yeah, that sounds about right. There was like a year when I, at the worst of my previous addictions, it was like a nine-month period where things were kind of going okay. And then after that, it quickly descended into uh, the hell that we're familiar with. Yeah, I mean, I never came down for a whole year. I I didn't come (laughs) down until I was in the hospital. And then they were giving me my... My drugs in a kidney dish with a with a proper rubber tourniquet, and it was like this is fucked up, you know. I, cause I like shooting up in scungy toilets and <laughs> back rooms and stuff like that, but and it was too clinical. So I I was in a private room because I had serum hepatitis, which is uh, probably the forerunner to Hep C. And I just locked the door. I put a chair under it and said, "You know, don't come in." And for three days, I got very, 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 very sick. And that, was, and that was the first time I was ever dope sick. And I thought, this is fucked up. And then after I told them that I had to do some business in the city. And so I caught a, a bus and a subway and I hooked up with my friend Russell, who was a great musician, a junkie, and uh, shot dope and had a great time. And he, he, he laid on me a, a Jewish dowry, with all, all silver with coins and stuff hanging off it, using weddings and... He gave me that, and I went back to the hospital wearing this dowry, all fucked up. I and mean, I think I had one one boot on, and one I lost a boot on the way. Or something. <laughs> and the doctor came up to me and said, "Why, why do you do this?" She said, "You know, you can have any anything you want in the hospital. We'll give you anything you need." I said, "It's just not the same, you know." <laughs> so they sent me back to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so you were you were living in Australia. You went to London 
for school and they they sent you back because you were fucking up the uh the the medically assisted heroin there. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know that that makes sense because I, that's why I don't think the the safe injection sites and the regulated stuff works because at heart a junkie doesn't want to check into a lab and get their drugs. Like they don't want to wait. They don't want to do it in any kind of regulated environment, I don't think. Yeah, it was same as a methadone clinic. That's as boring and horrible as hell too. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I want to do it when I want to do it, how I want to do it. I don't want to, like, be in a lab with all these other people. Exactly. It's an isolating drug. Yeah. So I, I ended up back in Australia, and physically I was cured, but mentally I wasn't. Yeah. yeah. And so I started knocking off drugstores. And in those days, no, there was, no one had ever knocked off a drugstore until I, <laughs> I went back. <laughs> So and you I, were like the original drugstore cowboy. I was a drugstore junkie. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the, yeah, then I got busted, and, um, and and I had a great judge. And uh, Australian law is based on crown law, and the judge knew I had a problem. So instead of sending me to jail, he sent me to uh, a mental institution under a magistrate's pleasure, which means that I could have been there. I could still be there if, if my first wife hadn't got me out. Which wasn't my wife at the time. She was a she was a law student. She, I mean, I met her when I was fifteen, and she was twenty. So you're fifteen years old, and you have a twenty year old law student you're seeing who gets you out of the mental institution. Yeah, you yeah. must have had some serious swag. Well, I was basically entrusted into her care. Wow. <laughs> And they thought getting, me getting married to her. And she was great. I mean, she was uh, the equivalent to a, a Mayflower girl in, on, on the East Coast. I mean, she, she can trace her heritage to the first colonial settlers and stuff like that. And, and she lived in the... When, when, I, when I first met her, I was 15, she was 20, and she invited me to her house, and I went to her house. And I was living in a corrugated iron house at the time because my parents were migrants. So I, I caught this bus and I went to this part of town where she lived and I walked up the road and I came at the biggest fucking mansion on the highest hill overlooking the Swan River. And I thought, this can't be right. So I walked all, <laughs> I walked all the way back down to the highway again and I counted the houses one at a time in twos, that two foot, and it was the right house. And I knocked on a door and a, and a father took one look at me and because I, you know, I also, nobody had long hair. I kept getting picked up by the police having long hair. No one had long hair in Australia. They kept saying, oh, you, you, must, be a, you, you, mu you must be a homosexual. Or you, you, you. Weird shit like that. So it was kind of anti-authoritarian at the time. too. So, so I looked like this scruffy Brian Jones-looking kid. <laughs> and the father offered me 100 pounds, which is like $200, to leave. Fuck you. Did you take it? No, no, no. I, I married his daughter. Oh, wow. But he died before I married her. That, that's a whole other story. I guess he would have to. So while, while all this is going on, are you still able to be productive? Are you still building your photography career portfolio? Oh, yeah, yeah. With heroin for me, I'm very productive on it. I mean, I, I didn't, I don't nod out in the center court. I actually, 
become very creative and I, I work on it. Yeah, it's like a, it's like giving um, I don't know what do you, what do you give racehorses to to go faster? Like amphetamines. But I think it gives them the opposite. I mean, whatever it is, anyway, have, heroin has the opposite effect on me. I, I can rewire a whole house if I have to on heroin. Because it's, <laughs> it's a good idea at the time. We need a telephone in every room. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I think that's impressive because, you know, from my experience, uh, well, when I'm high, I don't do anything, really. I, I just get to a point where I'm just a vegetable laying on the couch doing nothing but it sounds like you're building a an illustrious photography career yeah you know what gives me that effect that you're talking about cocaine i can't do ah. a, i can't do a fucking thing on cocaine i just sit there on the couch i think of stuff to do and then i get up and it's just like ah, oh, i can't be bothered yeah you're like too scared or i'm like too scared to do it i'm like i should do this but i'm like no i can't i can't move i just can't be bothered <laughs> <laughs> it's too much effort yeah Tell us about some of your early achievements in photography. Like, what kind of stuff were you photographing, and when when did some of your pictures start to get noticed? Hi, when I was, after I got married and I was 20, I opened up my first studio, my first photographic studio. And I took my pictures, my portfolio at the, at the time, to a, the creative director of a, of a firm advertising agency called Ad, Adcraft. And this is a guy called David Duncan, and he he liked my work, so he he gave me my first job, which was an insurance company ad, which was a happy family flying a kite on a hilltop, and I was so excited to do this shoot that I t- I totally forgot to stop down on my lens on shooting it. So the first four frames are totally out of focus because they're totally blown out, but after that. The pictures were fine. But because they were paying for film, I decided I would burn in these totally overexposed pictures. And he picked one of them, which is like the third shot I took. And and I went back to my dark room and I, it, it, they were just too blown out. I couldn't do anything. And I had to go there and my heart was beating and I felt like I was a complete failure. I totally fucked everything up, and he just said, well, we'll pick number 11, or we'll pick frame number 12, and we'll pick on the second sheet frame number 5, and they are working together to create this picture that I totally fucked up. And I thought, wow, so that's how advertising works. And, I, <laughs> and then I, after that, you know, once I got, I got my first ad published, I mean, then it was, it was all go. I mean, it was... Photographers in those days they used to go to work in suits and ties, and I think I was one of the first photographers to wear a leather jacket and you know frayed bell-bottom jeans and or whatever. Anyway, but I used to go and I used to hit people you know whose work I I wanted to photograph, and I would say, "Look, I'll do your first three ads for free if you like them and you publish them. Then I want the account." And I started stealing other photographers' accounts that way. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's, a, that's some good business sense. Yeah, I thought so. I, mean, I had nothing to lose. And how old are you at the time? 20. Wow. So how, how do you develop that sense? Because, shit, I was terrified of everything until I was about, I don't know, 35 years old. You're 20 years old and you're already, like, stealing accounts from other photographers. Yeah. Um, 
chutzpah, I think American yeah. Jewish people call it. <laughs> I just had balls. I mean, I, I had nothing to lose. I, I wanted to do this. And, and, I, and David, the guy, the art director from Madcraft, we became really close friends and he's, he's still alive and we still talk to each other. And when I was in Australia last year or the year before, when my brother was dying, he brought out all these pictures that we worked on back in the, uh, in, in the early 70s. And it was like, oh, wow. I'd totally forgotten. These are, these are good photographs. And it was really interesting with the work that I was doing there because it, it was outside the box. And back then, would people be surprised when you showed up? Because you said, you know, most photographers are showing up in a suit and tie, but you're showing up in a leather jacket and bell bottoms with long hair. Yeah. The, uh, the old school people were weary of me. I, I just, just watching a, a series on Marlboro's, Marlboro cigarettes and Burnett from what a jowly fucking old sod he looked like. But that was the, what these people looked like, very jowly, very old school, and had their, their way of doing stuff. But I became involved with actual processes of how to make an ad. I used to talk to the, the plate makers, the film people, you know, and they really liked me. You know, these are the guys that would be sucking on a paintbrush with cyanide, pure cyanide on it, which is the only thing you can use to take a, the black out of a negative back to pure white is, is, is straight cyanide. And these guys would be sucking on their paintbrushes and spinning in a spittoon. <laughs> <laughs> First time I used cyanide, I was scared. Man, I was scared shitless. You know, my heart was beating because I thought I was going to accidentally swallow this shit. <laughs> oh, my God. There's a, there's a technique to it. I mean, the same way, I suppose, electricians, you know, they don't turn off the power. They just, you know, stick a live wire into something. They know what they're doing. What kind of stuff were you photographing? You were doing... Uh insurance ads did you segue into like rock bands and that kind of stuff i was shooting rock bands i was shooting peter's ice cream was my my biggest client i'm a i'm a i'm great at ice cream <laughs> and milk i can photograph milk now milk milk has no texture milk you've got to do a lot of weird shit to milk to make it look appetizing in a glass so i figured that shit out by blowing oxygen through it and stuff like that yeah doesn't yeah. it doesn't it come out yellow on film no. What color is it? Like, how do you get, like, what it, when you shoot it without, like, any expertise, what does milk look like? Looks like a white blob. Looks like, you know, when you open a tin of paint, it looks like that. If you just, gotcha. There's no texture to it. There's a, so you have to add all these things to make it look interesting. How did you end up in America? Now, I know how you ended up here, but uh, you got to tell that story. I was asked by the police to leave Sydney. <laughs> I, I, I end up in Sydney and I became one of the top fashion photographers in Sydney, but it never stopped me from doing drugs. And all my my editors and my publishers all knew I was a heroin addict and they they enabled me. As long as I came back with the pictures, they were happy. They didn't give a fuck how, what state of mind I was in. And I eventually got into trouble and I, was, I eventually was told to leave Australia by a policeman who, I mean, I was already in trouble. So if I got into trouble again, I would have gone to jail for a long time. So and I was, I took my friend's wife out one night. She, she was a, like a real party girl. And her name was Leo. And, and Vitek, 
wasn't into that kind of stuff. And every now and then she, she, he just said, look, go out, you know, call Robert, go out. So she called me up to go out. Well, he called me up and said, will you take Leo out tonight? I said, yeah, I'll take her out. So I had a pocket full of all kinds of drugs, heroin, cocaine, two-in-holes, second-holes, um, ecstasy, you know, a night's worth of drugs. And I took her out to about four o'clock in the morning. I put her in a cab to go home and I, I walked home down the alleyways of, of Sydney back to where my studio was because I was living in my studio at the time because I'd left my, my wife, my second wife by then. And on the way down, I saw these two policemen beating up this one kid. Yeah, they were really laying into him because I was so fucked up. I just said, hey, hey, you can't do that. Two on to one, that's not fair. So this other policeman walked out to me and started beating the shit out of me. He said, well, how's this then? One on one. Oh, man. So I was, I was dragged off to the Darlinghurst Police Station, which is a place I spent many a night. And the desk sergeant said, oh, Robert, you know, what are you doing here? You know, you can't be in trouble. He said, empty your pockets. So I emptied my pockets and I took out, you know, heroin, cocaine, two-in-alls, you know, ecstasy. Well, DM, it was MDA at the time. It wasn't ecstasy, it was MDA. And he just picked up his garbage pail and he just swept all my drugs into it and said, you know, Robert, it's time you left the country. And he left, let me out. And uh, three months later, I was in America. Is there a certain pride in getting asked to leave a country? Ask any cowboy that's been run out of town. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just means, I mean, every time I go back to Sydney, I mean, I've lost my Australian residency because I'm an American citizen now, but there's always a danger of me getting shot in the back by some disgruntled vice squad. Because I, I helped the drug squad bust the vice squad through all this process because the vice squad were very corrupt. And they wanted to put what I was dealing in through them back on the streets again. And I was already going to go to jail because of the drug squad. And uh, so I set up a deal with the drug squad to bust the vice squad. And so there's always that chance that some disgruntled policeman who spent 25 years in jail shoot me in the back. You know. So it sounds like you were in pretty deep. Yes. Yeah, well, the, the news, when I, when I got into trouble, the newspaper said, Robert Butcher, if not Mr. Big, Mr. Big enough. Now that I'm proud of. <laughs> <laughs> so were you scared having to come to America? Had you been here before? I came in 1979 to have a look. I came to New York. And, um, and when I, when I came back, it was like 83 when I came back. And it was like, I was introduced to the Lower East Side and it, it was bombed out and it was burnt out and it was derelict. It just reminded my childhood. And I thought, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I kind of romanticized that period. I'm like, wow, late 70s, early 80s, bombed out Lower East Side, CBGBs, just total lawlessness. It kind of sounds like a great time. It, it was a fabulous time. You know, it was. It was. But I think only to artists and junkies, it would have been a great time. Yeah. To, every, to everybody else, it was kind of what people wouldn't go down. First Avenue was a cutoff point. People wouldn't even come down to Avenue A back then. And I was, I was on Avenue D back then. You know. Oh, back then. Wow. Yeah. And that, it was really, you know, you couldn't, you wouldn't, if you walked down the street, you wouldn't, you wouldn't walk down the pavement, you walked down the center of the road. Very similar to how COVID was. 
it, it, yeah, it was it was great. You know, plus the fact you had lines of people trying to comp dope and there were twelve year old kids with bas- baseball bats keeping you in line. <laughs> there was you know holes in the wall where you put your money through a hole in the wall and hope someone's going to cut your hand off. But, you know, you come out with what you wanted. And, Buckets are coming down from rooftops. You know, you put your hundred bucks in for a bundle and see a hundred bucks go up in the air and then another bucket will come down when you're doping it. <laughs> and then, you know, and people would know what you're copying too. They, you know, they would hear that you wanted a bundle because people who wanted a bundle kind of got pushed forward to the line and stuff instead of people who just wanted to buy a bag. Yeah. And, and then you would like try and get out of there with, I mean, I, I got held up plenty of times and, and robbed coming back because uh, people didn't know what you caught. When I was getting down on that level, I ran into trouble all the time. Almost getting arrested, uh, getting robbed, getting mugged, getting fake stuff. Yeah, that's that's all part of the game. Yeah. And then you would, even if you got beat, you would try and shoot the fucking stuff up. It might be porridge. And you say, it's got to be something. It's got to be something. <laughs> I remember getting beat and I was like, I'm done. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm over. I can't keep doing this. And I think it was about six hours later that I just went down there and tried again. That was about as much willpower as I had at the time. Six hours is a long time. It really is. Cause I'm thinking about later and I'm like, wow, six hours is pretty good. So what's your career looking like at this time? I mean, how did you get set up in New York? Are you still photographing? How, how was your life at that time? When I got here, I had to go through immigration in Hawaii because that was the first stop. Now planes can fly straight from here to Los Angeles and stuff, going from there to Los Angeles. But I had to clear customs. I was so fucked up on the plane, and I was like, kind of wheeled off in a wheelchair and go through customs, and I had all my camera equipment and stuff. And they would say, well, you're going to work here. I said, so I said, yes, I am going to work here, but I'm only going to work for Australian magazines. I had all these letters of introduction to work for the Australian section of, of New York. So they let me in. And then I found out that I needed a bank account. You couldn't get a bank account unless you had a social security number here. And I found out that you can get a non-working social security number. So I got a, a non-working social security number. Then I got a, my name on an apartment, a lease, and then I started paying utilities. And I had enough credibility to apply for a green card. And I applied for a green card and uh, 84 I think and uh, I became an American resident straight away and then I started working for downtown magazines like Details when Details was downtown New York Talk Village Voice and I fucked up my my Condé Nast introduction because I thought that they'd be very similar to my Australian editor's and I went in and I spoke to the fashion editor of Vogue magazine here and I nodded out on her desk. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, what, what, was it like a sitting up nod out or was it like head falling down on desk? Uh, I think it was my head falling down on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's classic. There's no recovering from that. Well, there was working below 14th Street. I mean, that was fine. I mean, there were a lot of boutiques, uh, Ian's Ends and type of people like that, Zoo. I used to shoot for all those people. Oh, man, it must have been an exciting time. When I'm in the Lower East Side in East Village now, I still love it, but I can't imagine, like, early 80s. It was a desperate time, you know, but good, good at the same time. There was always an air of something exciting about to happen. 
Yes, I, I felt that a lot too when I moved here. You know, you're just, you're figuring things out. You're running around to bars and Bushwick and Bed-Stuy and Williamsburg. And it's like, wow, we're, we're on the cusp of something here. But really the only thing I was on the cusp of was a crippling addiction to drugs that I would have to one day overcome. Yes, and I'm glad you did. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Exactly. But one, one of the things I remember about copping down the Lower East Side, I was on Stanton Street and I, I, I copped a bundle and suddenly I'm being chased by these three big guys and they, I'm running and I ran across Houston Street and they chased me across Houston Street and they pinned me up against one of those raw iron fences that has the spikes in it. And they were pushing down on my chest and I, and any minute now, one of these things is going to go through my, my chest plate and pierce my heart. And I saw the guy had a Rolex watch on and, and it was a real Rolex because I knew that. And I managed to rip it off his arm and I threw it into Housen Street and they all turned around and chased that watch while I ran off the other way again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty brilliant escape move. It, it was tricky. You'd think you would like leave that in your pocket or leave it home and then like put it on when you're done robbing people. Bling, baby, bling. <laughs> <laughs> Did the bottom ever fall out for you? Because you said, you know, your career's doing good, you're flourishing in America, you've got an apartment, you're set up, you're, you're doing the photography thing, but you're also battling this addiction. When did, did things ever become unmanageable to the point where you're like, I got to stop? Well, in 87, I did stop. I, I stopped for 15 years. And everything flourished. I was flying back and forth. Yeah, I would, I'd be shooting like the Eileen Fisher and Sophie Finzi here for spring and summer. Then I would go to Australia where it's spring and summer there and I would shoot for the magazines there. And then when it became fall there, I would come back to New York for spring. And so for 10 years, I didn't have a winter. I was just flying back and forth, flying, flying back and forth. Oh, that's beautiful. And my Australian assistant, he said to me, you know, Butcher, he said, it's all, this is all fucking ego. It's all, it all is. You just want to see your name, you know, your credit. It's ego. So I came, when I came back to New York the last time, I thought, well, I'll, I'll stay here and see what happened. Yeah. And life happened. So what did happen? Just mon a lot of mundane stuff, a lot of stuff that my ego really didn't want to deal with. You know, I, I broke up a marriage. I broke my third wife or my fourth wife, one of the, one of the two. It, you know, it just became like, like everybody else, just everyday living. You know, I, I was building a career, and then I started growing marijuana in, in factories here and stuff. My photography took a, a backstage part of my life why I just became an expert on growing marijuana. You know? Now, you said you're growing marijuana in factories in New York City. Yeah. And that's pretty impressive. That's, that's got to be quite an operation. It is. It, is a, it becomes a full-time fucking job. Were you, uh, st were you clean while you were doing this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. And I, I guess you're making a lot of money at the time, too, huh? S stupid money. And I'd also, I started a publishing company at the same time, and uh, I was publishing magazines, and I was paying rents for people who were working for me. I, I was just throwing my money away. I opened up an art gallery in Berlin, which I never went to. I mean, I was, <laughs> <laughs> How does that work? 
do you just send the money over there and they send you pictures of the gallery? Like, what? How, how does that work? Well, I closed my publishing company in 2004. Um, and one of my editors said, look, I, I want to go to Berlin and start a clothing shop there. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. It's fashion. I mean, I can shoot the fashion ads for it and stuff like that. And that turned into an, an art gallery, lowbrow art gallery. So, yeah, basically I was just selling money there every fucking week, like two grand a week would just go there. Ridiculous. Then I picked up in, I mean, I picked up in, before in 2001 after 9-11, but that's, that's a whole other story. So after 15 years, you ended up getting high again? Mm-hmm. Now, how was it? I mean, did, did you enjoy it at first? Because I, I've done this once. I met you kind of in the realm of not doing drugs, right? Yeah. And I, I was, in, I was uh, dipping my toe into things, and after about three months, I got high again. And I, I thought I could just go back to how it was before, and everything would be okay. And I don't know, like I would use on the weekends again, and, and it'd be cool. But that's not what happened at all. I would say, I would say 95% of it was not fun, and then it was just right back into misery. What, what was your experience? Fun. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like my head absorbs that stuff. It's like a, it's like air for me. I mean, I I can't do it because of the now I uh, it's like certain death if I if I use now, but it never loses its its wonder for me. You know? Yeah, I mean, I definitely enjoy it, but it's like I just the misery is like too much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, fortunately, I mean, I, as I said, I was growing marijuana, so I had stupid money. So I had a huge habit. Right. I never had to wallow in misery. Yes. Yes. You know, that happened to me last, my last go too. I didn't run out of money. I just got so miserable. I was like, I have to overdose or get arrested or die to stop. Like, that's the only way I'm going to be able to stop. I just I just reached a point where it was complete misery. Yeah, well, I ended up trying to commit suicide. So what happened there? I failed. <laughs> <laughs> clearly. <laughs> I clearly what, failed. What, like, what did you do? What, what, was, what led to that decision? Desperation. I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just, I mean, it, I was shooting four bundles a day. And then I, then I, then I started speedballing and that's what brought me down. I think the speedballing more than anything else. I just burned to cry. I, I lost interest in everything. And I had a huge loft in, um, Fort Greene, huge, huge loft. I used to work and it was my studio. It was my, it was where I produced my magazines from. And I just became a derelict to my own, my own home. So one day I can't do it anymore. I can't do this anymore. So I deliberately tried to overdose and woke up in the hospital. So did you decide to clean up again after that? Yeah, they, then I went back into another mental hospital. I was there for 30 days. Average stay there is about 10 days, and they kept me there for 30 days because they didn't think I was safe to go out. And I did, and then I went home, and I was on like... Zoloft and Seroquel and other kinds of stuff. And I was just basically lying on my couch. I had, I might as well have just been shooting dope. And I just thought, I've got to stop. So I called 
my second wife, who I got clean. My first wife, I got clean. No, my second wife, I got clean. My third wife, I got clean too. So I called her up and I said, look, I think I've got to go back to meetings. And she took me. Then I got clean for five years again. And then I had a back injury and had to take Percocets. And Percocets led to me shooting heroin again. And then that's when I became a real junkie. Before I was never a junkie. I was, I was, uh, I always thought of myself as a gentleman junkie. And I became like a street junkie. I was like secretive and hiding and doing nefarious things. And, and I'm living with someone who's clean then, and I'm making excuses like I'm tired. And she knew. Anyways. One day she just said, look, I know, you're, I know you're doing dope. And I said, instead of denying it, which I, <laughs> I just said, yes, I am. And she brought out my, my box that I would keep all my stuff in. She showed it to me because I knew she must have found it or she wouldn't be approaching me with it. And I said, yeah, she helped me get clean for this time. So, so now you're clean. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask. It's, it sounds like you're just always up to something crazy, you know, like growing warehouses full of marijuana while clean, while uh, crisscrossing the country and the world in planes while photographing. Do you just always have a lot of stuff going on? In my head, there's so much stuff going on. <laughs> and, and I try to put that into, into practice. You know? Yeah. Right now, we're, we're starting a new magazine. Uh, I've been out of publishing since 2004. And... It's time for me to put my vision. One of my magazines I was doing was called Tear, and it was supposed to be a very urban street magazine that ended up being a lowbrow art magazine because of my editor and stuff. And it, it was never the vision that I wanted. So now this new magazine is 27 inches high by 22 inches wide, single page, double page is 44 inches wide. It's a full broadsheet. So it's, it's great for images, great for graphic designers, great for people that want to make great ads that, that actually be seen and not reduced down to an 11 by eight size magazine. And Christine is doing all the graphics and the artwork and stuff and she's amazing with it. And, um, we're a year behind schedule because we procrastinated for the last year. We thought about doing it, and then we'd talk about painting the house, and then we'd talk about something else. Time just slipped away in COVID. I, yes. don't know, I don't know anybody that actually fulfilled anything. I don't know anybody that actually did anything worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, most people didn't. It was, it was just such a weird time, a really weird time. Yeah. Is uh you know days just drifted into weeks and weeks drifted into months and it's, you know, just but now we're coming out of it where we we start back into it again because I really want to have it out. It's only going to be it's only going to come out twice a year because I don't I don't want to do a monthly magazine again. It's just too hard work coming up with all the stories and everything that you want to do on a monthly basis. So you've got the magazine coming out. Do you have like a uh, estimated time of when that's going to drop? I want the dummy to be finished at the end of summer. Then when the dummy is finished, then I start hitting up advertisers. Then once we get the advertising, then we're going to full production. And the reason, 
And mm. most of the stuff in the dummy will be able to go into the first issue because it's not time sensitive. I mean, I, one of my stories is an interview with, with a friend of mine who died. So the body of the story will remain the same, but then it'll end up being an oral history about him. So it, it's not time sensitive in that sense. You know, it's not like this is a, this is a latest fashion that's going to hit the street tomorrow. And what kind of work are you doing now? Like, what kind of stuff are you photographing? Portraits for interviews, working on my noir and seedy nights. I don't know, you know, you've seen a lot of my work. It's all kind of erotic and sexy and stuff like that. My yes. And, and that's going to be in the magazine under a section called Noir and Seedy Nights, which is, you know, half-naked women in, in beautiful cast-off lingerie and stuff. I love photographing women. I make them look beautiful. So when you're setting it up, how involved do you get? Are you designing the set? Are you working on poses and clothing? Like, what's your level of involvement? I, I don't work on poses. I have a friend of mine who thinks of himself as a fashion photographer, and he gets models, and, and they pose, and he goes, no, you're not posing properly. You know, he says, fuck that. It's how you react to a model, how you make her feel, how she responds back to you. And it's continually talk, talking and seducing to a sense to get the image that you want, but you're not making anybody do anything. They're doing it because it's how, how you get them to feel inside. Same with fashion photography as well. You know, it's just like, just keep moving. I'll talk to you. Just keep moving. I'm, 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 you know, I'll get some reaction out of you that, when I, when, you know, you know, I mumble, right? A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so when I, back in my Sydney studio, I always used to use the Hasselblad, which meant you're always kind of looking down into, into the Hasselblad and you, and you're giving, trying to give some kind of form a reaction to the models. They can't hear you because hey, they can't hear me because I mumble. So they're always going saying, what? So one day, I had them, I had all these trapezes set up in my studio where the models were sitting on trapezes and I mic'd my camera up to sound and I deliberately started mumbling more than I would usually mumble. And they were getting really frustrated with me because they couldn't hear me. And I'm deliberately making them get more and more frustrated. And then I turned the mic on and it came through these speakers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they... They half fell off the, the, the trapeze, which was what I wanted. That's interesting. It's like you're setting these things up to catch them off guard, to catch these incredible moments to get on film. Yeah, and I did the same with Barry Humphreys back in uh, in the seventies, where I went to uh, I went to London to shoot Barry Humphreys, and he's uh, you probably know him as Dame Ed Dame Everidge here. And so I had Barry in the studio and I had him sitting on two, two uh, semi-naked models like Alan Jones's furniture. So he's laying across them, you know, kind of a pose with his knees kind of bent over him to hide, hide his dick and shit like that. And I had a single with the girls. I said, when you hear me say, when the claw, when the claw draws blood, I want you to drop your elbow so Barry will fall off. And that would be the, the shot. So I do this, the girls drop their elbows. Instead of Barry falling towards the camera, he fell backwards towards this whole bank of lights, which was used to light up the background. And he gets up and he goes, 
what the fuck do you say? I said, sorry, Barry. I said, it was supposed to be a reaction shot. He said, no, I'm, I'm really interested in what you want, what you said. I said, it's like when the, when the claw draws blood. <laughs> and we laughed about that and, and that was fun. Then this, this studio was in an old warehouse. It was like three stories high and it had the, uh, the big open doors on, onto the alleyway, dropped three floors down to the alleyway before. And he's, talking to me and he's waving goodbye and he's, he's repeating this phrase, you know, when the claw, and he's walking towards this fucking door, which he's about to fall out of. And that would have been a great reaction shot, but <laughs> I, 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 I didn't have a camera at the time, but um, yeah, it's all about reaction. You know, it's all about, like with my friend, the photographer, he wants the models to go through 10 set poses, you know, hand on your knee, bend your knee, hands, you know, hands on your hip, blah, blah. And it's like, what the fuck, you know, it's so boring. There's no life, you know. Do you have a project you were involved with that you that you're like most proud of or that you think about a lot? Record covers that I, I like. Oh uh, yes, we were looking at some of the uh, record covers that you've done over the years. Midnight Oil. Yeah, Midnight Oil. That was that was a great one because we, Midnight Oil had just got signed to CBS and it was uh, and Garrett and myself we, we think the same way. Is that how can we screw this company out of as much money as possible? <laughs> So I said, let's get a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a helicopter. We just flew around. And then the idea of the album cover came from that. You know, place on a postcard was these four desolate places, the ocean, the forest, the, the, be the sandy beaches and stuff like that. And um, that was fun. Yeah, that's, that's fun. To a lot of people, that's not their favorite Oils album cover, but to me it was because I, I lived and worked with them for six months while we did the album cover and... and we were playing the, the rough cuts all the time. So the song stuck with me. So when I, when I hear that album, it brings back total recall of, of that time. I love that. That's beautiful. And we talk about that a lot on this show because, you know, Tommy and I have been in bands and I've been on out on tour a little bit. And, you know, certain songs can just take you right back to a moment. You can, you can smell the smells. You can feel an isolated feeling that you haven't felt since that time. It's really an incredible thing. It's powerful stuff. That's why they have Goldie Oldies radio stations. So people are sitting in their office doing mundane office work and they hear a song from the 60s or the 70s and they go straight back there and they're quite happy doing their mundane work because they've got all these memories. Yeah, the nostalgia comes, all of a sudden floods over. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the reason why they do it. It's, 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 it's another form of mind control. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps the masses sedated. <laughs> exactly. Religion can't do it, so it might as well be rock and roll, right? So let's talk about what we've got coming up. We've got the magazine coming up, right? What's that called again? It's called Infraskin. A-N-F-R-A-S-K-I-N. It's, it's basically everything that gets under my skin. Gotcha. <laughs> and for skin. Yes, yeah, so we're going to keep an eye out for that. You have a website, too. A lot of Robert's work is up on Robert Butcher Photography. So we want to take a look at that. Yeah, there's stuff up there. So it's an unfinished website. All my websites are unfinished. Well, they're just works in progress, right? Everything's a work in progress. Including ourselves. Definitely. <laughs> so on that note, how do you feel today in 2021? Are you happy? Do you worry about falling back into the dark depths of drug addiction? Like, what's your, what's your life like? Right now, I'm, I'm very content. I'm very happy. Uh, 
I have projects in my mind. Uh, I still want to be a rock and roll star. I play a little bit of guitar, but I'm not a musician. Did you play in bands back in the day? I had it. I got fired from my own band. Oh, really? What for? Being fucked up. (laughs) I was a typical egomaniac with low self-esteem. So I, I couldn't face the audience unless I was fucked up. So I would have my back to the audience a lot of the time. And one day I, I, I took a whole stack of Marshalls off the stage with me and my band fired me. And I wrote the, I wrote the songs and did, it, was, it was my fucking band. But I, I'm just no good at performing in front of people. Yeah, I'm the same way. And, you know, I don't think I ever got kicked out of a band, but I think people have ended bands because of me on more than one occasion. And yeah, my ego, uh, same thing, huge ego, but also really low self-esteem. And that just causes all kinds of trouble. Yeah. I hear you. I'm happy too. You know, we've talked and this wasn't the easiest year of my life, but I'm at a time where I feel genuinely happy, mostly peaceful and uh, surging with creativity. Yes. And it's exciting stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's what keeps me going. If I, if I stop running out of silly ideas i might as well just roll over and die really i mean there's there's nothing for me i feel you and you know i'm so happy that all, all my years of of getting high and and all that stuff i wasn't really creating anything now i, I was in bands and i was kind of doing it but once i stopped and once i got clean there was always things happening there was always ideas being generated from my brain whether it's like taking a little time-lapse video that turns into something later or photography or little video edits or i don't know new bands podcasts there's just always something happening and that's not something that happened for me before so i'm glad that it's happening now and i'm spending a lot of time reinterpreting my old work too you know the things the images i created before I now look back on them and think, well, how can I improve this image? Because it's, it's not a state thing. I, 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 I use Photoshop a lot, but I, I use it the same way that I would in the darkroom. Um, but I'm going outside those particular boundaries at the moment, which is kind of nice. Hey, Tommy, you haven't said anything for about five hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, I asked about milk not that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, my thing is, is I kind of hang back and when I feel like I'm uh, necessary, I kind of pop in, but, uh, you've been doing a lot of the talking and it, it's just so interesting to hear your stories. I'd rather just sit back and listen. Do you have any specific questions for Robert? Go for it. My thing was like, when you look at other people's photography, do you have an emit like an immediate reaction because of your background in it? Or do you, can you look at like people's stuff on Instagram and go like, Hey, that's actually like I know this person took this shot with just their iPhone and kind of like just posted it. But do you see stuff on, in your day-to-day life where you just go, oh, that's a brilliant photo. Like, and it's just done by an unprofessional person or someone who's at a complete amateur. There are a few people that I follow that take absolutely amazing photographs, especially artists that are dealing with taking their own imagery and stuff like that. Yeah, I do. A lot of work, I, even, when, even when I open a magazine, I look at uh, editorial photography. I think, why the fuck did they do that? You know, <laughs> what, what, what's it? And then, you know, m- most editorials are advertorials, you know, that they're paid for. You know, it's just magazine work is crazy. You know, it's just, it's just yeah, no, I, I, I'm very critical of other people's work. 
but when I see something that I really love, then it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I still look at Guy Bourdain's work, and man, he was the master of the wide-angle photography and erotica and wide-angle photography used for fashion. Absolutely fucking amazing. You know, Bloomingdale's booked him once back in the uh, late 70s to do all the window displays. So they flew him out from France. He, he did a shoot here, took the films back to France, processed them there, then sent, him, then sent Bloomingdale's his selection. And they wanted to see all the pictures he took. And he goes, no, 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 no. You're only going to see the ones that I really like. And they're going, no, 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 no. We paid paid for this. You know, we want to see them all. So he said, eventually the lawyers got involved and eventually he said, all right. So he pinholed every other, every picture he didn't like. <laughs> this, this is the days before scanning. So, you know, you couldn't. <laughs> it made it unusable. Yeah, totally unusable. <laughs> and I thought. That's, and Helmut Newton, I mean, I still love Helmut Newton's work. Are, are there people now that you see in photography that are that are famous or at least very, you know, well-known, and you go, their work is shit? Like, do you see that a lot and go, because, like, I hear bands sometimes and I go, ugh, how do people listen to this? Do you see the same <laughs> thing, like, when you look to flip through a magazine or, or see a billboard or see advertisements and go, how did this person get work? Is that something you still can, you know, see on a daily basis? Yeah, but I know, but there again, I know how competitive it is. So if they've got the job, I'm kind of proud that they've actually got the job because they probably turn to someone like, let me do your shoot for free. <laughs> <laughs> well, that works, oh, that works for you. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that other people are doing it. I mean, I, I'm, too, I'm too old to compete with young photographers now. It's, you know, people in the industry are young people. They don't want to deal with an old fart like me. Hence, I have to publish my own magazines again. Because yeah. I've always, want, when I was young, I always wanted to be my own biggest client. And this is what I've become, my own biggest client. Yeah, that's beautiful. I like that. I like when people make it out on their own and they're just like, no, fuck you, I'm doing what I want. Yeah. Well, that's my contribution. I don't have anything else. I ran, like, I, I know like very little about photography. I just remember I, I when I took a photo, uh, when I was younger, uh, I had a friend that was in uh, school for like film. Actually, it was a girl I was dating at the time and she was very impressed. She was like, wow, you use the rule of thirds with this. And I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I, just, <laughs> I just took a bunch of pictures. <laughs> I just liked the way it looked with those people on the side. And then like the, the, the background looked cool. So I wanted that in the background. But, you know, she was like, oh, no, this is really great. You did this, this. And I was like, I didn't do that. None of that was intentional. <laughs> you have an innate eye. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> Maybe you do and you don't realize it, Tommy. My, my theory is crop in the camera and take one step back for bleed. So, folks, let's recap. Robert's doing great, and he's, he's got a magazine coming out. He's got a lot of his work up on robertbutcherphotography.com. We're going to check that out. Is there anything else we didn't talk about that you want to mention? Well, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, we haven't talked about the Rolling Stones. We haven't talked about Led Zeppelin. You know what? Let's talk about the Stones and Zeppelin, because if it's the same stories you told me, we got to tell those. Yeah, okay, we haven't talked about Cheetah Chrome, your dead boys. I managed them for a while. Um, Led Zeppelin. All right. Uh, I had exclusive rights to photograph Led Zeppelin in Australia. And what year was this? Going to be 77, 78. 
maybe. So we're talking like prime Zeppelin. Prime Zeppelin. Yeah. Zeppelin when they were huge. And so I, I, I photographed them and, and I had all my strobes linked up to the stage lights. So I didn't have to use long exposures or push the film. So I could just like fire my flashes through the stage light to get the same lighting they were getting. So I'd taken enough pictures and I wasn't, you know, I, and I wanted to watch the show. So there was about a hundred yards between the stage and the bleachers. And it was all grass because it was on an outdoor football field. So I sat there in the middle of this field, just watching the show. And it was, it was like they were playing just for me. Then I, <laughs> then I started hearing my friends in, in the bleachers going, fuck you, butcher, fuck you. <laughs> 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 anyway, so that that was my Led Zeppelin story, and it was and it was great. That's beautiful. You know, the first time I saw you, Robert, I actually thought to myself, look, because you just have this look. I was like, I wonder if that's like Robert Plant or something. <laughs> We're the same age. <laughs> I think he's a bit older than I am. But yeah, then the other thing was um, being in Houston Airport. And I was walking through it and this cop came up to me and, and he insisted I was Robert Plant. <laughs> See, so I'm not the only one. Yeah, and I kept telling him I wasn't. And he kept saying I was. I kept saying I wasn't. And he kept saying I was. So I said, okay, I am. You got me because I have an English accent. And so he wanted to buy me a beer. I said, you can buy me a beer if I can hold your Glock. <laughs> because I, I was fascinated by the Glock. I mean, I've never seen a cop with a Glock. It was the first time I've seen a cop with a big fucking Glock. So we said, yeah. So we went to this little bar in the airport and I told him some Led Zeppelin stories, which I made up. And, <laughs> and he gave me his Glock to hold. I was, I was very proud of that one. How long were you holding on to the thing? Longer than he wanted. <laughs> yeah, he actually asked for it back. Wait, so you have a Rolling Stone story too? I have a Mick Jagger story. Let's hear that. I, I was invited to Mick Jagger's 49th birthday party in Sydney. And I actually thought for a long time, I thought it was his 50th birthday party, but it worked out it was his 49th. And it was when the Stones had kind of broken up and Mick Jagger was touring this generic Rolling Stones band with a generic Keith Richards. And I went to see him. And I, I, I sat through about five songs before I said, fuck, this is fucking horrible. You know, <laughs> this guy's, this guy's trying to be Keith Richards and, Mick's doing all these disco songs and shit. So, but I was invited to his 49th birthday party because I was somebody, I guess. So I went and it was very small. There was only probably about 50 people there the whole time. And out of those 50 people, 40 of them were suits. They were crowding around Mick. And I, my friend Vitek was there. He was the one that got me the invitation. And I took my my friend's girlfriend, Beth, there, and Rudger Howard. He, he was there. Shit. And he was making a movie in Australia. Anyway, he was there. He was on the dance floor, but he was, he was kneeling against the wall because it was a sunken dance floor. And he, whatever drugs were on, he was on, they weren't agreeing with him. He was just like all clenched fists and... <laughs> and he was 
trying to trying to move to the music. It looked like a white boy dance. And Mick was on the dance floor doing his Mick stuff. And my friend Vitek, who's a great dancer, who can click his fingers with both hands and with both hands at the same volume. Mine aren't. My right hand's louder than my left hand when I click my fingers. But his are really, really loud. So Vitek comes onto the dance floor and he starts out dancing Mick. Now Mick's getting a little pissed off about this and starts upping the ante. And Vitek ups the ante and then Mick walks off in disgust. He walks back to the, he walks back to the suits. Radka's still up against the dance floor. Vitek's smiling to himself. And I said to Beth, okay, let's go. So I took Beth out and on the way back. I walked up to Mick and wished him a happy birthday and left. And that was it. That's my Mick Jagger story. <laughs> Imagine out dancing Mick Jagger. That's legendary. Oh, it was fucking great. It was absolutely fucking great. Because I was really, <laughs> I was really, I mean, I, to me, the Rolling Stones was Brian Jones's band when Brian was in the band. I mean, yeah, that, that's who we flocked to see. We didn't go, because Mick didn't do anything. He just stood behind a microphone and had a miracle. That's kind of sad. It's like his only friends were business guys at that point or something. Yeah, exactly. He had suits from the record company. So, uh, oh, wait, you managed the Dead Boys too? I managed Cheetah Chrome when he was trying to put the Dead Boys back together. I managed Cheetah until he became totally unmanageable. First of all, I was clean in those days. So I, I, my friend Tim was living in a basement on Fifth Street and so... Cheetah wanted to get clean, so we took him down the basement and we handcuffed him to the radiator and gave him a little Casio keyboard and a recording device. And the first three days were horrible for him. But on the seventh day, he started like making some really beautiful music. And after two weeks, you know, we were feeding him the whole time. So, you know, but he was handcuffed. He wasn't allowed to go out. And like on the 14th day, he has to go out. I've got to go. I'm going to go fucking crazy. I'm going to. So, okay. So we let him out and he ran up Fifth Street and he had his long full length leather coat on and his, the hat that he wears. And he ran up Fifth Street, jumped in the air, clicked his heels, Charlie Chaplin style, kicked over a garbage can. And that was the last I saw of him for a few years. <laughs> oh, man. But then he, but he got beaten up at uh, the Ritz, when the Ritz was the Ritz. So was that the end of your managing him when he just disappeared? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 the end of Cheetah, or, I mean, I married my fourth and fifth, fifth wife. I call her my fourth and fifth wife because I married her twice. And uh, <laughs> we were given a bottle of champagne for... Uh, as a wedding present. I wasn't going to drink it, so Grace wasn't going to drink it, it, but it was just there. It was a memento of our, of our wedding. And I, Cheetah was living on my floor at the time, and Cheetah had keys, and I came home one day. He came home. No, I woke up, he came home, and he was lying flat on his back on, on my carpet with a plate of rice and Vegemite. He'd mix Vegemite and rice some kind of meal. It was still on his plate, on his chest, on the plate. My dog was licking it, and he had a half-finished bottle of my champagne in his hand. Cheetah, <laughs> 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 you gotta go, man. Yeah. And meanwhile, he had stiff ashes with him, and so I took him up to Connecticut to this 
to these guys and Spiderweb was up there and Spiderweb was going to tattoo Cheetah with the ashes of Stiff, but um, it never happened that day. <laughs> no, no, it was some great time. Actually, Cheetah's, I love Cheetah. Cheetah's such a beautiful man. You know, he's just fucked up like all of us. You know, when he's using, he's, he's fucked. Yeah. Is he still around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's reformed the Dead Boys. They've got a, a new lead singer. And, you know, for a long time, Cheetah was kind of angry because he, he was the last living Dead Boy. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, he's doing well. I mean, the band's doing well. He's on tour. Well, he, he didn't tour for the last year, but, he's, yeah, he's, he's good. Robert, you know, I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us tonight and come on the show. You know, you've been a good friend, and you've certainly helped me through a lot of tough times this year, and uh, I just want you to know that I really appreciate you. Well, thank you very much. Same, my feelings are the same for you. Yeah, Robert, thank you so much for coming on. We truly appreciate your time, really. It's, I, been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the milk question. <laughs> you would always be the milkman to me, Tommy. <laughs> Much appreciated. There you have it, folks. Robert Butcher. Legend. Just an absolute legend. The guy has done so much. You know, I meet up with him on Saturdays and we'll sit in uh, Tompkins Square Park and feed squirrels and just bullshit. And I was sitting there with him one day and I was like, do you talk about this kind of stuff publicly? He's like, yeah. I was like, you want to come on the show? <laughs> I was, he's, just, he's just awesome. I mean, like the show aside, he's, uh, he's just a great person to talk to and... Uh, you know, just the de dealing with all the stuff I dealt with this year, and he kind of got me out of the house, and we're hanging out and talking about stuff, and we're involved in some other things, you know, and he's helping me out with, and it's uh, it's good stuff, man. Great person, great, great discussion. Yeah, he's l certainly lived a full life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, like just like I mentioned, or I don't know if I mentioned it before, but when I, just seeing him. He's the kind of person you just see and you're like, that guy has endless good stories. And it all turned out to be true. Like, <laughs> it's just one after another. Like, I'm like, you know, even talking to him, I'm just like, you've lived some life. And I remember him saying, being just like, eh, it's just life. <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty nonchalant about it. It's he's dude. He was really fun. I think it's uh, interesting, though, that like with photography like you can run the gamut from doing album covers to fashion shoots to uh erotica like it it, it like if you're a photographer you kind of have not endless but you have a lot of avenues to pursue like there's a lot of different ways you can go with it whether you're working like straight advertisement work and taking pictures of milk or you know taking pictures of uh, women in, in, you know, scantily clad women in your, in your studio. Yeah. There's a lot. I didn't really think about that. Cause I just think, I guess I'd think in only in terms of one thing, like, Oh, I'm a rock photographer or, Oh, I photograph this, but yeah, there's a lot of different options out there. He's done a lot of different things. The cool part is, is though he's done so much that he can kind of just do whatever he wants now. <laughs> yeah. That's a really rad way to go about living. Yeah, he's got, I'm sure he's got endless connections through all the different things he's done. And 
he's putting this magazine together, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. And uh, yeah, it was just it was just great all around. Yeah did you did you catch on when he was talking about the magazine when he was talking about the dimensions of it? Yes. Holy fuck, that's a big fucking magazine. <laughs> did he say twenty seven by twenty four? Yeah. So when it's spread, it's forty inches. I'm like. Hold, wait a second. Hold on a second. Like I started doing that in my head. I'm going like 27 inches. So this thing is more than two feet long and two, and it's two feet wide. Maybe uh, he meant centimeters. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I think That's a big was, magazine. Yeah, dude. It's fucking huge. I, I envision you, Tommy, visiting up here one day and uh, we all hang out together. But oh yeah that would be awesome yeah you're gonna have to come visit sometime maybe he did mean centimeters because 27 centimeters is like (laughs) this is math tommy kicking in right now i'm trying to do the proportion in my head it's like a little bit over 10 and a half inches so yeah maybe it's that but then it's no because a regular magazine's like what 11 and a half by eight see this is like what you did in first grade when you figured out the dimensions of Noah's Ark and then you wouldn't let it go. And then they took you out of religion class. <laughs> oh, you tommied to, them. I got to learn about a lot about world religion though. <laughs> I learned about Shintoism and fucking feudal Japan and uh, all kinds of cool shit. And, and all I had to do was be a dick to a nun for that was, uh, that was in fifth grade. I did that. You know, the good news is I think I feel a little better. I always do when we're almost done the show. Like, I feel a little less sick or something. I'll have to confess, I have a terrible headache right now. Yeah. And I think of it, a lot of it has to do with, and this is such a crazy thing, but I, I, I was just talking with my, like, when I came home from work, I have a real short turnover from when I get home from work to when I start recording with Keith. Like, I walked in the door at, like, uh, a little bit before five o'clock, made dinner, sat down and ate, and then came down here to record. Uh, but we were talking about it. She was like, are you okay? And I was like, I just have this like weird, like behind my eyes. It's not like a headache, like a pounding headache, like I'm hungover. Like behind my eyes just feels achy and tired. And she's like, well, you were like tossing and turning last night. And in my head, I'm going, I felt like I got a good night's sleep. I was in bed early, like 930. And I felt like I got a great night's sleep until I got up this morning. And when I got up, I felt like, I felt like I didn't sleep. Like I felt like, oh fuck. Like today was nothing in terms of work. Like it was just, it was the anxiety of I had to get up and go. some. I had to finally be somewhere that wasn't the skate park or, you know, Costco. That's (laughs) tough. That's tough. Especially for you on the Costco tip. Yeah. Yeah, You haven't been to school in a couple days or a couple days. You haven't been to school in a couple months it's hard and you get up really early and by the way let me say that i appreciate you coming home on that schedule and getting on the podcast right away because me i'm like a baby i need a lot of time to unwind and prepare but the fact that you come home make dinner and then come right down to to do the podcast i just want you to know that means a lot to me i hope kelly oh i appreciate that i hope kelly doesn't listen to this one so (laughs) so i came home today Kelly asked me yesterday, very nonchalant, and I didn't really think about it. She was like, how do you start the lawnmower? And I was like, oh, it's just like this. It's a real easy thing. Like, look, 
And when I pulled in the driveway this this t- like after work today, the whole lawn is just covered in lawn clippings. I was like, "Hey, did you do the lawn?" She's like, "Yeah, you don't have to do it when you come home from work this week." Then, and I was like, "I appreciate that." However, did you change the height on the wheels? And she's like, "I did. It seemed really high." And I'm like, "Oh no!" <laughs> so like literally, she cut the grass without a bag on it. So like all the clippings just get blown around. But normally, when I do it, I cut it high enough that like there's only a little bit of clipping, so it kind of just gets blown around and it like falls back into the grass and gets mulch, right? So my whole lawn looks like there's like a sheet of like green grass on top of it. it looks like green dust is all blown around. I was like, oh. Fuck. Like, all right. Well, do you have a leaf blower? I do, but that's what so I just blow all that junk out into the street. I that's what I'm gonna do tomorrow. When I get home from yeah. work tomorrow, that's first order of business. But um yeah, Kelly was like, I did the lawn out front this morning. She goes, she gave me the biggest hug. And I was like, What's that for? And she's like, I hate the fucking lawn so much. I'm so glad you do that. <laughs> she's and like, Kelly, I'm- Tommy is very appreciative that you uh I, I cut love the grass. It. I I love that she I love that she tried it because in my <laughs> in my head that was also something that was kind of like in not giving me anxiety but like I it did keep coming back as you you ever have those thoughts that are just repetitive like as much as you try to like forget them like they just keep popping in your head like I I knew one day this week I was gonna have to come home from a full day of work and fucking mow the lawn in the heat and I was like. Oh. I don't want to do this. It's going to be like 90 all this week. I don't want to do that. And now I don't have to, <laughs> but uh, oh, that's great. Yeah. But when I walked in, that was like, she was like, I didn't do the dishwasher or cook dinner and don't look at anything in the living room. And I was like, why? And she's like, the kids just destroyed the house today. Like the lawn took me like three hours. I'm like, Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So I, came in i emptied the dishwasher filled the dishwasher with the dirty dishes and meanwhile i did that um i cooked dinner at the same time so it was like it was like my my brain was trying to do uh 10 different things at once and i wasn't doing any of them very well but uh look the kids ate i ate and i we got on here on time and and we did it i know that we're supposed to be doing this show because of the unbelievable drive that we have like i i have to do it it has to get done no matter what even when i really don't want to i never cancel i never waver i always make sure it's done i i love it i i was just gonna it, we don't reschedule guests reschedule we, yeah. we don't we don't no no like, and it's i think that's something that kind of like goes in line with just our personalities though like you never called out of work well i did sometimes but not not a lot yeah not a lot uh, not often, but, uh, and you went into work times where I was like, holy cow, how'd you make it to work the next day? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, I think that kind of speaks to how much we really, we really do enjoy doing this and we, we really love spending time with our guests and, and more than that, just spending time and talking to each other and, and having the, you know, people, we have the luxury of getting to talk to cool people about cool shit every week yeah and this isn't like an a band where we put out an album every two years or i don't know like we can we can do this every single week was that i uh luke that was on luke carmen that was on he posted something last i think it was last week on instagram and it just it stuck with me he he's his post said something like replace have to with get to yes i saw that too i liked that and it's like 
oh, I have to do the podcast. No, I get to the opportunity to talk to rad people like and spend time with my friend. Like that's fucking uh, something that a lot of people don't get the opportunity to do. And I think also based on a lot of your hard work, we've continued this. Like it's just, it's been fucking rad, man. It's so much fun. If you think about it, it's the perfect structure. I want to do everything. And and that keeps me busy. So I get to do that. You don't care about having to like do stuff. You know what I mean? Like you don't have any, cause you're busy. You have a family, you have a wife and you're not like, Oh, I want to control this or I want to start doing that. You're like, no, like you got it. It's cool. So oh, the dynamics just work. And I, well, I, my, the other thing is, is I implicitly trust your judgment with stuff because you have a really good attention to detail. Oh, we can't talk about that. <laughs> well, Tommy and I were involved with a thing recently and, you know, choices had to be made and selections and stuff. And I'm like, Tommy, do you want to look at this? And he's like, no, 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 I trust you. And I was like, wow. You pick it. I love that. Yeah, because I, well, that's, I think a lot of that comes down to one, I implicitly trust your judgment. And two, I know you have both of our best interests in mind. Yes. Like, ultimately, you care, does this benefit the show? Like, does this make the show better or worse? And you have that. The other thing is, is like, you have an eye for things that I don't like. And that's something I know that is not a strength of mine. And I always will defer to if I know someone is strong at something and they're really good at it. I'm like, I'll defer to them, even if it's a blow to my ego. Yeah, fuck them. Fuck, not fuck them. Fuck it. Uh, (laughs) Because, like, I've been in things at work before where there's like you know a group task, and they're like, "Hey, why don't you take care of this?" And I'll be like, "Actually, so and so is better at that." And they'll kind of look at me like, "Oh, okay." But that's kind of like, you know, don't you want to take over this? Like, no. Like, I I want you to do what you're best at, and me to do what I'm best at. Like, yes. That's the way it should be. Yeah. Like uh, we were talking about with Robert, you asked him, does he have an eye? Can he see if something is good or not? I feel like I have that. I feel like I can look at something and see it and be like, yes or no, definitively. I've also, you know, you also have, we've said, we've talked about this at length before. I don't even know if about it on the show, but like you have a real talent for being able to collect, curate and edit video in a way that's compelling. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Even if it's making fun of Mikey Miles. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, folks, since Tommy brought it up, I I took down the trailer and unfollowed him from all social media. And I'm I'm out. I I don't think it's cool to be giving him any attention anymore. He was arrested recently for... No way. For something bad. I don't even want to give it any attention. I'm going to leave it right there. But I, I just want everybody to know I'm out. That's oh, no. it. I'm done. How did you? How did I miss this? Please. Okay. I'll All tell right. you after the show. Okay. Good. Right. <laughs> I don't want to give him any more attention. Fair enough. Yes. So, well, that's it. We did it, Tommy. We did it. Another episode in the books. Fucking phenomenal. Yeah. So, uh, thank you, Robert, for coming on the show. You're awesome, Tommy. Thank you for making the time in your busy day. To be a part of the show. Oh, another thing I wanted to say. I love this the family structure at Tommy's house. Just him and his wife and the kids are pleasant. Everyone's really pleasant. Everyone helps each other. I was I was happy and a bit jealous when I was there, you know? Because I was thinking about uh 
well, let's just say past situations I was in. And I was like, wow, look how happy and supportive everybody is. I wish I could experience that one day. Wow. It is, uh, I will say this, it is unbelievably rewarding, but at the same time, it can be at times physically and mentally taxing. Oh, yeah. With three young kids? Forget about it. It's so far outweighed. Like, uh, I'll have to text you the picture. Every, or Kelly texted me a picture today of the baby's going to start uh, daycare uh, when Kelly goes back to work. And she texted me a picture of Eleanor playing on the ground with Estelle. And Estelle is, like, obsessed with it. She ha- when she goes to daycare, she has to use a nap mat to take naps mm-hmm. during the day. So it's like a little – look, think of sl- like a sleeping bag. But instead of it zipping up, it just folds – like there's the, the blanket just folds over the top, right? Yeah. Um, she's, like, obsessed with it. So she just, like, constantly is like, nap mat, nap mat, nap mat. And <laughs> so she's, like, laying on the ground, and they're, like, looking at each other, like, so happy and content. I was like, oh, that is the sweetest thing in the world. <laughs> like. I got bummed though because I, I was at work and I was like, oh, I miss that. But well, listen, you're there a lot. I certainly am. I make you. You have the dad thing down. And uh, <laughs> all right, so that's it. We're out of time. So uh, thanks everybody for listening. And until next time.